morning. Let us kneel for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for waking us up this morning. I ask that you will please bless those who are traveling in today. Give them traveling mercies. Thank you so much that we are here at GYC and we can receive a blessing. I ask that you please empty us of ourselves and fill us with your Holy Spirit. I pray especially that you'll be with Sebastian this morning. Anoint his lips and help him to speak your word. Let him be a vessel for you. Thank you so much for loving us and dying on the cross for us. And we can't wait for that great GYC reunion in heaven. In your precious name, amen. Oh, GYC, do you love Jesus? Are you sure you love Jesus? Sure love Jesus. And why do you love Jesus? Because he first loved me, that's the reason we all are to love him. Oh, how I love Jesus. Singing, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. How many of you, that's what made you get up at six in the morning? Because you love Jesus, right? Amen? This morning, I'm going to share a message with you entitled, But Now. But Now. Before we jump into the message and while the rest of the latecomers are strolling in, I'm assuming with their Bibles, I just want to ask you guys four favors. Is that okay? Just four. And this is going to be something that will help set the tone for our meetings throughout the mornings. My first request from USGYC this morning is to pray and to be intentional about this not being a regular meeting. As GYC has been in existence for about eight years, as an organization, we exist to help ourselves not exist. That's the reason that GYC exists. It is a movement. And GYC as a movement therefore means it is not an event. It is not something that happens for five days at a convention center while we stay in nice hotels eating food that needs a lot of prayer. <laughs> but I believe that we can give them a chance this morning. We'll see what they have for us. Amen. But GYC is a movement. And what that means is we must always be moving towards our goal, which is to finish God's work in this generation. If that is the goal, and if GYC is a movement, then you are GYC. GYC functions all year long, as long as the feet of young people are fast about their father's business, then GYC is a movement. It's when you stop moving that GYC dies. It's not when the conferences end. That's not when GYC dies. GYC dies when your feet as young people stop moving about your father's business. Thus, I need two requests as my second favor. There are two kinds of attendees 
There are those who have come to GYC for the first time. And for you, my challenge is, you came as you are, we welcome you as you are, but our prayer is that you would not stay as you are. We must always be seeking higher ground. And as a result of that, if this is your first GYC, pray in your heart and be intentional in your mind that this will not be a regular weekend. I'm not going to go back to do more of the same. It's not a mountaintop experience. This is actually the bottom of the mountain. It's when you leave GYC that you understand spiritual mountain climbing to the true mountaintop. For those of you who have come to GYC before, I know that for many of us who've attended for many years, you can become disillusioned. How many more GYCs do we have to have? How many more great speakers can we come up with? How many more great and powerful seminars do we need to continue to go through for every generation? We must be improving as a movement and that means for those of you who've tended for years, we need your presence as well because God does not just use speakers, he also uses attendees. And there are young people here in this place for the next five days, four days, who may not make it to morning or evening devotions for whatever reason. But you will see them in the hallway. They may be living in your room next to you. And therefore God needs you to be an agent of change. And so with the theme unashamed, we have to leave behind all the political correctness that keeps us bound from being true to the calling that God has upon our lives. If we are truly that generation, then that means we must be what no other generation was. Not even Paul's generation. So my challenge is if you see a brother or sister doing something that does not represent the spirit of Christ, tap them on the shoulder and call them out. If you see a young sister a little too close to a young brother, tap them on the shoulder. Amen? Tap them on the shoulder. My third request and favor is I hope that you guys bring a pen and paper when you come to listen to the Word of God. We have this mindset, I've heard everything that's ever been preached. We have this mindset that what else could come from this book? But the truth of the matter is lives are continually changed by the power of the Word of God. And that means for us to think arrogantly that we can get nothing from when the Bible is being opened. This is in actuality the thoughts of God being expressed to humanity. You cannot exhaust them. So, as my recommendation always is, you take out a piece of paper, pen or pencil, you ask yourself three questions about every sermon. It helps me as a preacher, because some sermons are hard to listen to. Amen? Maybe you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe your pastor is just the most dynamic speaker in North America. Three questions you want to ask yourself. Number one, what is it that I heard in this sermon that I've never heard before? You're always going to learn something new. Second question, where was my mind when the Word of God was being preached? Now you know sometimes you're listening to the, to the Bible being preached and your mind starts wandering, yes? 
You don't know why, maybe you, you ate that pizza too late, or you were hanging out with your friends a little strong last night, but your mind starts wandering, and that's not a negative thing. You need to write that down, because even though the preacher may be talking about but now, the Holy Spirit is trying to talk to you about your relationship. Because where two or three are gathered, there He is in the midst of them. And God has a message for every single person seated here. Where was your mind when the Word of God was being preached? And lastly, what am I going to do now that I've heard this message? Specific action. You know, when you look at creation, which is in question right now, we say that God created the world by His Word. That means that the Word of God always produces action. Amen? So that means we live in a world right now that when God spoke to a whale, it will swallow a man and not digest him. When God speaks to a donkey, it will open its mouth. When God tells the sun to stop while Joshua is fighting, the sun will stop. But there's one part of creation that is, keeps the power that is within the Word of God captive. And that is humanity. God can speak to us and we will do nothing. Simply because He's bound by the will, we must choose to surrender to the Word of God. Everything that is in opposition to the Word of God. So your third question is, what am I going to do now that I've heard this message? My last request is about a four-letter word. Anybody know what I'm thinking? No? It's not pray, but you should do that for me. The entire time. Okay. Four-letter word starts with an A. M. Oh, amen. Oh, amen. I want to reiterate something Justin said last night. Amen is not a black word. Amen? amen. I go to preach at black churches, I just stand up. Amen. I didn't say anything. God bless my brothers and sisters. But it's important for us to recognize that at the end in the book of Revelation, when the victory comes, all creation, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, wherever you come from, before the flood, after the flood, if you were righteous and you got the victory through Jesus Christ, there's one word that will come out of every mouth. That will be Amen. So that means it's not a cultural word. And amen, the first time it's used in the Bible is in the book of Numbers, chapter 5. Unfortunately, regarding a wife who was unfaithful to her husband. And the priest was to take her to the gate of the camp, pronounce a curse, and she's supposed to respond by saying, Amen. Which means, so let it be, as you have said. So if there's something that comes from the message that resonates with your heart. Something that you're saying, I want what that man, that woman just said, so let it be unto me, as they have said. Then you say, Amen. If there's something in the message that stepped on your toes, you're like, ooh, I'm going to have to give that up. You know what you need to say? Amen. So let it be, as you have said unto your servant. Amen. So I mean from the left, 
from the right down the middle. I'm a preacher that likes conversation. So please, don't withhold your amens. Let's pray. Mighty God, everlasting Father, we thank you for the gift of life. And we know it's not because we were so righteous yesterday that you gave us life today. But it's because your word says that your mercies are new every morning. And great is your faithfulness. That even when we do not believe, yet God abides faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Father, your mercies endure forever. And we are praying for this one meeting that you would help this by the power of your Holy Spirit, that this would not be a regular meeting, that you would travel from heart to heart and from mind to mind, impressing upon the soul the message that you have for that one heart, that we all may obtain higher ground and to develop a Christ-like spirit that is unashamed. Teach us, Lord, as we read your word. And take this, your manservant, whom you know is but dust in your sight, and breathe upon him breath of God, and fill him with life anew. This is our prayer, and we ask that you'll help this to be our experience, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12. 2 Samuel, chapter 12, when you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say, have mercy. Okay. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1. Are you there? Amen? This is what the Word of God says. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him, and he said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was unto him as a daughter. Sounds like the way we treat pets in America, right? I know some people treat their pets better than their children. I was like, mercy. But apparently it's not a new concept. Verse 5. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said unto Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Now we know that this situation that is coming by the prophet Nathan has followed David's sin with Bathsheba and his desire for cover up. And we find that now Nathan comes, and this seems to be a precedent in the life of David that he gets rebuked under stories. People tell him a story, he responds to the story and then the, the prophet or the person will say, you are the person who's guilty of the very thing in this story.
So he comes and he says, you know, David, you were a shepherd boy. There were two men in one city. A guy, one man, a rich man, had many flocks and herds. That means he had multiple groups of sheep. But at the same token, this one gentleman, a poor man, he only had one lamb. And that lamb was so precious to him, it grew up as if it was one of his own children. And when a traveler came in, as was the custom of hospitality in the Old Testament, they wanted to prepare something for this wayward traveler. And the rich man, looking over his many flocks and herds, he said to himself, You know, I don't want to use any of my sheep. I'm going to go get his sheep. So he takes the one man's lamb. And as he takes this man's lamb, he kills it, feeds the traveler. And David's response to this is in complete utter shock. As a shepherd, we're talking about a man who will fight a bear to defend his sheep. We're talking about a young man who will wrestle down a lion to defend his sheep. So you can only imagine how precious and heartfelt this is for David. And he responds with this condemnation in 2 Samuel chapter 12. It says that David says, As surely as God lives, the man who did this thing shall surely die. Now it's interesting, the Old Testament in the book of Exodus tells us that if you steal a man's lamb, you only have to restore fourfold. It's not worthy of death. But yet we find that with David, he goes beyond the condemnation of God. He is harsher on this particular crime than God himself is. But it's interesting because the next verse says, David, you saw how you just condemned this man? Well, guess what? You're the man. You're the man. You know, we live in a time where you're the man doesn't have any negative connotation. You come up and they say, oh, Brother Sebastian, I heard you're preaching. Oh, you're the man. No, Jesus is the man. Amen? Jesus is the man. But in David's case, I want to add a different definition to that, you're the man. You see, oftentimes we are harsher upon the evil that we see in others than we are in our own lives. We sit down and we watch CNN. We open up the newspaper. We heard some stories from the mission field about the kinds of evil and wickedness that exist in the world. And we sit back like David, listening to the Jerusalem news. A man stole another man's lamb. And we're like, man, this guy should be killed. But then the message comes back to you and me and he says, you're the man. We read about the fact that this genocide that happened in Rwanda. And if you just pick up one book to read the stories of what men did to other men, men did to other women. And you see the evil that was in the heart of individuals. They said they looked at the genocide as a nine to five job. Get up at 9, go out killing until 5 p.m., come back. A million people died in less than 100 days. And we look at that and we say, look at this gross evil and the fact that all these nations did not intervene. And we condemn the evil that we see around us. But what do we do about the evil in our own hearts? We are often harsher. And when you see the wickedness in that man, when you see the wickedness in that woman, do you see that you are the man? You see, friends, what we're simply talking about is this. What caused them to commit this genocide in Rwanda? 
What caused the heart of Hitler to rise up and decide to kill millions of Jews? What caused Stalin to cause the death of his people? It was a three-letter word called sin. And if that is what sin leads to, and sin is in me, then you're the man. We think because our sins are not as gross, God is showing us his distaste for sin. In our own hatred of the evil in others. And every time we look at the news, every time we crack the newspaper, he says, guess what? He grew up in a good Christian home, just like you. He went to a nice, good academy in a school, just like you. What happened to him? To me, that is why Timothy McVeigh blowing up this building in Oklahoma City was such a big deal to America, because we thought terrorists are out there. Terrorists are out there. And that's exactly our mentality in the church. The greatest opposition that comes in the church tends to be from within the church. Can you say amen? Somewhere, in some place, in some office, sin has taken hold of a man or a woman. And we may condemn the actions of a pastor, we may condemn the actions of an elder or another church member, but here it comes back to you via Nathan, 2009. You're the man. You're the man. I remember listening to this illustration about a wealthy businessman. He was listening to an apologist, Ravi Zacharias. And him and Ravi had a meeting. And Ravi was recounting this meeting. And he's saying he sat down with this wealthy businessman and Ravi's presentation was about the fact that in order for you to believe in right and wrong, you have to believe in God. You can't ground morality without God. So the wealthy businessman looks at Ravi across the table and he says, you know, I want to believe that there's right and wrong. I want to believe that there's evil in the world, but I don't want to have to believe in God to believe that. And as he's going on and on, his assistant was sitting by. And his assistant looked to the wealthy businessman and he said, you know, I hear you talking about the evils around you. I hear you talking about the evils in society. But what do you do about the evil in your own heart? And the man paused for a moment. And he said, well, I guess when I commit it, it is a victimless act. And Ravi, providing the proper logical kill, told the story of a prime minister in Japan who had committed suicide. And when his wife woke up in the morning, she saw a book opened on their table, De Profundis by Oscar Wilde. And he had these words underlined. As terrible as it has been, what I have done to others, nothing was as terrible as what I had done to myself. Evil is not victimless. Can you say amen? You may think you can sit in your computer and watch your pornography by yourself. But the Bible talks about those who oppose themselves in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He talks about you that sin against me, you're sinning against yourself. Sin hurts God because it is self-destructive. Are you hearing me? So you have in this concept, we need to look at the evils around us. This will change the dynamics of how we interact as a church. When we see a brother or sister make a mistake, we see an individual having this weakness, we say, oh, I look at them, and then the fingers come back. You're the man. Sin is in you. 
And my question is, is there a change that you are seeking in your heart this morning? Is there a change that you are seeking in your life? And the most fundamental question I believe to this generation of postmodernism, how does one change the longings of the human heart? We're a generation about being real. We're a generation about being open. And it's come to the place now where we're saying, you know what? We're just, we're just honest. We're wicked inside. And you know what? We now give people virtue for being honest about being sinful. Well, at least he's being real. That's what we say. At least he's being real. Yeah, he is being real. Real wicked. The fact that a person is honest about their sin does not justify it. It does not give it any merit. Now we do need some more authenticity in the church, but that's for another sermon. And my question is this, we have all these recommendations for how we believe the human heart can be changed. Are we really going to change the human heart by education? Is it really going to be sitting in a classroom listening to someone teach me about the history of hatred that's going to make me stop hating? Are you really going to deal with my lust by publishing physiological books on sexuality? Are you really going to deal with my pride by talking to me about Napoleon at Waterloo? Friends, Jesus is the only cure for the evils in society. And Ellen White says this, hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. How can you be unashamed of the only cure for the evils of society? How can we be ashamed? My belief is this, because we have not experienced that change. Deep down, we don't really believe Jesus can change people. Deep down, we don't really believe that Jesus can bring a person from here to here, from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, from the power of Satan unto the power of God. But the first place to start is within your own heart. And if there is a change that you are seeking this morning, this is the time to get the change. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 20. Gospel of John, chapter 20. When you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say have mercy. Okay. John, chapter 20. Are you there? Notice with me verse 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, it's so interesting that John puts this at the end of his gospel. You pick up the Bible for the first time, you know, someone tells you, you know, Ellen White talks about reading the gospel of John is a good place to start. You start reading the gospel of John, and as you're plowing through one, two, three, four, five, all the way to chapter 20, and now, boom, he lays it on you. Oh, by the way, this is the, po this is the point of my gospel. So now you got to go back and read the gospel with new eyes. So you wonder why certain stories are not in John's gospel that are in Matthew's gospel. 
Why is it that certain accounts are not found in John's Gospel? Well, John says in verse 30, he says, In many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Which means my Gospel is not a historical account. I wasn't trying to catalog history. I wasn't trying to necessarily count from prophecy to fulfillment in the experience of Jesus. The purpose of my Gospel he says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if this is the purpose of John's Gospel, every single story, every single passage, every single encounter in Jesus' life, he's trying to say, this is why you should believe. This is why you should believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing you and I may have life through his name. John says faith is not an intellectual ascent alone. Faith does not just belong in a dogma or a doctrine. Faith does not just belong in a creed. Faith belongs in an individual. Faith belongs in Christ. And because faith is for a person, I'm trying to get you to believe in a person, John says. I'm trying to get you to believe in a man who can flip tables and receive children with the same hands. That's what I'm trying to get you to believe in, that he is the Christ. So that means that when you look at John's gospel, he is building a case and an argument from story to story, from person to person. This is why you should believe that Jesus is the Christ. But I believe, friends, that more than any other gospel, John records the ability of Jesus to change lives. It has some of the most accounts of Jesus' one-on-one encounters with individuals in his ministry. Just to do a quick overview. We meet in chapter 3, Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Then we go and you say, Nicodemus has the wealthy, the respected, the knowledgeable. You go to the woman of Samaria, the outcast, the downtrodden. You deal with the man at the pool of Bethesda, completely hopeless. The woman caught in adultery, the guilty, the blind man, the helpless, Lazarus, the apparently irreversible. Jesus comes in and he changes individual lives. And what we find here, this becomes the greatest argument for Christ. His ability to change lives. Because they can argue for postmodernism, they can argue for evolution, they can argue for all these different things and theories. But the point is, deep down, every heart seeks a change. Every heart has habits they want to break. Evolution won't do it. Every heart has something. You could get a PhD in psychology and still not deal with your mental problems. Because Christ, John says, is the one. My question is, has God changed your life? Would your story make it in the these are written category? So that you might believe. Are you in argument for the Messiahship of Jesus? That he is the Christ. Is there some place in the diary of your experience where God has changed your life? I want to look at one story in the Gospel of John, which is where we're going to finish. Go with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. 
To me, this is one of the most exciting stories in the Bible. When you're there, say amen. Anybody need mercy? Okay. John 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now I want you to follow this. John chapter 8, Jesus was about to get stoned. He was passing out of the temple so they wouldn't kill him. So here he is. The Savior is escaping for his life. And while he's running for his life, he passes by a man who was born blind. Now let me ask you a question. If you're running for your life and you know that there are a group of people trying to kill you, would you stop? <laughs> would you stop? Well, that's the kind of Jesus that we serve. He's not afraid for his life. He's afraid to pass you by. Can you say amen? He's not afraid for his life. He's afraid to pass you by. And he sees a man who has had an issue in his life from birth. Blind from birth. As Jesus passed by. He wasn't looking for the blind man. That was not on his agenda. He was just passing by. And while he was passing by, they see this man who was born blind. And while they see the man, the disciples are like, well, Lord, whose fault is it? Did his parents mess up? Did he mess up? And I thought that was interesting. A man can sin before he's born? That's interesting. And Jesus says in verse 3, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now I want you to think now for yourself in your personal life. I don't know what issues you and I have been dealing with from birth. There are some weaknesses in your life and in mine we've had for a long time. Can you say amen? There are some struggles we've been dealing with since we came to know Jesus for ourselves. There are some skeletons in the closet, some of our darling sins that does so easily beset us. And you may wonder, why is it, Lord, that I had to go through this from birth? Why is it that I had this issue since I was a child? Why is it that I'm the one, when you talk about my travels in ministry around this country, and I sit down with young people having been abused by seven-day Adventists? I sit down with young people, I was, I was preaching at one place, and this story has never left my mind. After I finished preaching, this young lady came up. She said, Sebastian, I need to talk to you about your sermon. I said, yes, how are you doing? How can I help you? She started telling me about sexual abuse she was experiencing. She said, I don't know what to do. So we prayed together, we talked. Next day, I preached again. She came up with a friend. Her friend looked at me. She looked at me. She said, well, Sebastian, um, she has something that she wants to tell you. I said, okay. So as we're sitting there on the side, the people are just conversing and ready to leave the meeting. And the girl looks at me 
and immediately her face turns bright red. She starts crying. And her friend says, go ahead, just tell him. Just tell him. And while she's trying to encourage her friend, the girl collapses on the floor and starts crying hysterically. And I knew why. And I knew why. And there are, every one of us has a why question. Why me, Lord? Why is this my struggle? Why is it so hard for me? Sometimes we come in the church and we feel like we're the only one. Amen? You're struggling with something and that is the devil's, that has to be one of his best lies. Just you. No one else in GYC struggling with this. Just you. And we come here ashamed. We come here like, I want to get involved. I want to do this. But we're ashamed. And Jesus says, friends, we don't have to be ashamed of what's gone on in the past. We don't have to be ashamed of where we came from. What we struggled with. Deep down, even if you were born with the issue. And you're saying, why me? And Jesus says, so that the works of God could be made manifest in your life. God wants to show himself strong in your behalf. He wants to show the miracle working power of Jesus. That there is more than power in the blood, but that there is healing. Restoration. And for you and I to come back and you know the Bible says that we're all born in sin. And shaped in iniquity. We've all had a blindness from birth. And Jesus doesn't pass by. He doesn't pass by. And he says, why? So that the works of God could be manifest in your life. So notice what Jesus does, how he heals this man. John 9, verse, we, we read uh, verse 3. We go on to verse 4, Jesus says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now I thought this was interesting. The man is already blind. Jesus makes clay from dirt and puts it over the eyes of the blind man. He's already blind. And then he gives him these instructions in verse 7. And he said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way therefore and washed and came seeing. Can you say amen? amen? Now follow this. He anoints the eyes of the blind man with this clay. He spits on the ground, makes clay, anoints the eyes of the blind man, and he says, Hey, go find the pool of Soleam and wash. Wait a minute, Lord. How come the blind man doesn't say, but I'm blind, Jesus? How am I going to find the pool of Siloam? So his eyes, he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem, inside the temple, with mud hanging off his face, looking for a pool to find his sight. And you can imagine, he's, he's groping around and he's talking to people. Hey, am I near the pool of Siloam? And you have some people that help you on your journey to Jesus to be healed, and some people that don't. So they come and you, some, some people thought this was a practical joke. Oh yeah, there's the pool of Siloam, leading him right into a wall. But then you have other people say, brother, what are you looking for? He said, a man named Jesus told me to go find the pool of Siloam so I could wash. And they take this blind man by the hand with this mud on his eyes. And they say, here's the pool of Siloam. 
And I can only imagine that as he goes down to the pool, he stumbles in, he falls into the water, he kneels down and he starts washing his face. But this time when he opens his eyes, he can see. And the first thing that the blind man sees is his own reflection. I've never seen myself. He sees water dripping down his face, looks up in the reflection of a bright blue Jerusalem sky. So as he's going down out of the water, he sees blue for the first time. He looks over, he sees red for the first time. He looks over, he sees a young child for the first time. He sees a beautiful woman for the first time. Have mercy. And as he's walking around, he realizes he comes back seeing. And here we have the only person that we know he wants to see is Jesus. But he only heard his voice. If he heard his voice, he would know. But he never see Jesus. So even if he saw Jesus, he wouldn't know. He wouldn't know. You see, friends, when Jesus works a change in your life, the first thing that happens is you see yourself for who you really are. When your eyes come back. Can you say amen? You see yourself for who you really are. He comes home, sees his mom for the first time. It's as if this is an entire new world for the blind man. So he's looking at the situation, he's like, man, everything he sees is beautiful to him. But at the same token, he doesn't just get to see beauty. He doesn't just get to see colors and the sky and a man embracing his wife or a child running into the arms of his father for the first time. He also gets to see evil for the first time. He's only heard, he never saw, he never saw. And of course, you know what happens. He comes back seeing in verse 8, as soon as Jesus works that change in your life and in mine, notice what happens. The neighbors therefore, and they which had seen him that was blind said, is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, this is he, others said, he is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, how were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. You see friends, as soon as you have a but now experience, people will always remind you of what you used to be. You come back from GYC with this holier than thou. Oh, you came from GYC, now you have all this training. You want to go out and witness in the streets now? I remember you. I remember when I first became a Christian. My mother, she was a Seventh-day Adventist before I was born. Left the church when I was probably one or two years old. And I remember as soon as I became Seventh-day Adventist, I came home to visit for Christmas holiday. I was a vegetarian. You know, that didn't go over well. My mom's like, I'm making your favorite. You know, you like salmon. I'm making filet mignon for Christmas dinner. I'm like, Ma, you know, I'm vegetarian now. What? You're vegetarian? You're getting too much into this Adventist thing. And mom, I'm like, Mom, I'm not trying. I'm just saying, you know, I'm trying to be healthy, you know, take care of the temple of God. Boy, I was Adventist before you were born. I know about the prophecies. I know about Daniel too. I know about Daniel 7, I'm like, okay, Ma, that's great. Don't try to come up in here, but I was like, okay, I'm just vegetarian. <laughs> used, I remember we used to eat double Whoppers from Burger King. 
I'm like, I'm sure you do. But now, are you following me? You see, friends, when people bring up your past, it only makes the change of God that much more powerful. Wait, Sebastian, aren't you the guy who used to be out there with the baggy jeans, with your hat cocked, and dressing like your clothes were for, made for your big brother? Yes, that was me, but now. So here comes the blind man now. He comes back, everyone's like, hey, aren't you the guy that sat and begged on the side of the road? Well, you know I can get a job now, because I can see. But now, this is what it is. There's something about our past that makes us ashamed. For many of us, went out yesterday for outreach, no one responded. We're like, man, I'm a terrible canvasser. Some of us went knocking on doors to do some outreach, no Bible studies. I'm not good at this outreach thing. Some of us were trying to give victory over sin, yesterday I failed. So therefore I'm not going to give victory today. Jesus is all about but now experience. That means the present is a contrast to the past. So you come and you say, yeah, the devil's like, remember you failed yesterday. You're right, but now. Oh, wait, brother, aren't you the girl that went to GYC, messed up, wearing your skirts too short, attitude too strong? No, sir, but now. That's what this is about. And the reason why we are ashamed, because we haven't had a but now experience. You see, the blind man, in order for him to deny Jesus, he has to deny his own sight. How can you make me ashamed? A man named Jesus told me to wash, I came seeing. Now, well, sir, you know, according to Socrates and Plato and different philosophies, that's great, but I can see. Explain. Can you imagine that? Philosophy class 101, blind man can see. Explain. This is where we are, friends. This is where we are. So he comes, John 9, and I want to speed through this story. The Pharisees, they're opposing him. His parents won't claim him. Now here's your son. He just got to see for the first time. You can only imagine the discouragement in the mom's heart, especially when people in Jerusalem are like, Why did, what did you do that your son was born blind? And now Jesus heals your son, and you don't want to stand for Jesus? He's the one who gave your son sight. Friends, you got to believe, your parents aren't always going to receive what happens at GYC. Even though they appreciate the change that Jesus has worked in your life and in mine. Sometimes they're afraid to stand. So the parents won't claim him. So now he's talking to the Pharisees in John 9 and this is what happens we're gonna do this and this is where we're closing <clears throat> verse 24 then again called they the man that was blind they, they called him blasted him told him to come back they said unto him give God the praise we know that this man is a sinner talking about Jesus and he answered in verse 25 and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. But there's one thing I know. Whereas I was blind, now I see. Amen? You see, friends, he's standing before the Pharisees. Men who memorize the Old Testament word for word. Men who are strong to think. 
Men who can reason. And the blind man says, you can't reason me out of my faith in Jesus. How can you reason? They're like, look, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. And the blind man says, you know what? I'm not interested in being intellectual. I'm not interested in being the smartest apple in the bunch. That's not my goal. Whether he be a sinner or not, I don't know. But there's one thing I know. Whereas I was blind, now I see. But now. But now. You see, friends, we come to GYC, you may not know many things. I can't break down 2300 day prophecy. I can't give a seminar on how to reach your neighborhood for Christ. I can't get up there and preach these devotional messages. I can't be the one to run logistics. Whether you be a sinner or not, whether Jesus is this, whether you can break down the virgin birth, whether you can break down the theological necessity of the three angels' messages, whatever the case may be, you need to know just one thing. Are you following me? Do you know one thing this morning at GYC? You see, when people try to attack the blind man, when they try to disprove him, when they try to reason him out of it, they cannot reason him. To deny Jesus is to deny my experience. This is where we are lacking an experiential knowledge with the power of God. When we know what it's like to be changed, when we know what it's like to be delivered, when we know what it's like to not buckle under temptation, when the devil lays it on thick, when your mom who's not converted lays it on hard, and you're like, mom, you know I'm trying to keep the Sabbath. Why are you trying to ask me to do all these things? You may not know many things, but do you know one thing? Do you know one thing? Have you had a but now experience? You see, the man who wrote that hymn that we love so much, John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. John Newton used to be a wicked man. He grew up under his father, who was actually very educated. And John Newton, at a very young age in his teens, he got into sailing. Went out with his father. He was just a rogue kind of child. And while he was in his little, you know, escapades, doing the devil's business, he ended up getting kidnapped and became a slave in Africa. He was held there captive for almost a year. And it just so happened that one of his father's friends happened to be passing by this particular port. And John was trying to send out signals so somebody could help him. They caught the signal, came, picked up John Newton, and on his way back to England, they hit this storm. And while they're in this storm, they're like, for sure the ship is going down. We're going to be all lost. We're all going to be destroyed. And he said, everyone's manning their thing. They're pulling the ropes, trying to get buckets of water out of the ship. And while he's doing this, he said, he encouraged him. He said, man, where is God? You know, God have mercy on me. And then he said, when he said that out of his mouth, he says, it hit him. Why would God be merciful to me? I run a slave ship. He takes female slaves from the bottom of the ship, rapes them and puts them back. 
And John says there's no reason for God to save me. No reason. And he says right after he prayed this in his heart, and then he, he kind of recanted, he's like, well, God probably won't save me. I'm a wretch. I'm a wicked man. The ship survives. God converted. Dedicated his life to ministry. Wrote over th- he wrote thousands of hymns. Good friends with William Cowper, who wrote, Oh, for a closer walk with God. And while John Newton came in and he wanted to pen the words of this song, God's grace, the story that he turned to was John 9. John Newton had a but now experience. And I remember reading about how he was 82 years old. He was 82 years old and the man, the man said, John, you know, how are you doing? He says, you know, my memory is not that great, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. That's what I remember. That's all he says. That's, he says, I know two things for sure. And my question to us this morning in GYC is, do we know? Do you know? I remember my sister used to watch this show, Extreme Makeover. Maybe you've heard of it. In this television show, my sister was telling me about how these people, they take ordinary people who apparently have no style or fashion sense. <laughs> they bring them onto the show, they redo their hair, get them a new wardrobe, makeup. Sometimes they do plastic surgery on the person. They do like, you know, liposuction, reduce their weight. They put them on a weight program, exercise regime. They go through the whole nine yards. And the whole point of the show is for the reaction of your family and friends when you go back home. That's the whole point. And the reaction is filmed on tape. So the family's sitting there and they hear the, you see the little knock at the door. They say, yep. And they open the door and you see the mom go crazy. Oh, John, you look great. He's got a nice suit on, nice shoes. He's got a fresh haircut, whatever the case may be. And they say, this is extreme makeover. They may have shows to change your fashion. They may have shows to change your hairstyle, your house. But what shows do they have to change your life? This morning, some of us need an extreme makeover. And when you go back home, the reaction of your friends and of your family. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Maybe there's a person or a young person this morning who says, Lord, I need a but now experience. I need my eyes opened. I need the works of God to be manifested in my life. I need you to break down the strongholds in my past. I don't have to be ashamed. And if you want to say this morning, Lord, I want a but now experience. And when I get that but now experience, now you know why you can be unashamed. You can't get me to disbelieve in Jesus. You can't get me out of creation because he's recreated today. If that is your wish, you say, Lord, I want a but now experience. I want you to go ahead and stand to your feet. I want a but now experience. And GYC is just a pool of Siloam.
so you can come and wash and go back see now my last appeal is very specific there are some of us who may have never ever gotten victory over a particular thing it's just that one nagging sin that one thing I've been dealing with for a long time I went to Africa a young man told me he's been struggling with masturbation for 10 years Young ladies have told me they're struggling with pornography for years. Young people dealing with anger and hatred, even racism. And you're saying, Lord, this struggle, I need victory this week. I need to have a but now experience. I want you to come to the front so we can have special prayer for you. I need specific necessary victory over this thing in my life I want you to come to the front because for many of us this is where the rubber meets the road we can talk about Christ we can talk about the power of Jesus but the point always boils down to do we have victory and can we keep getting victory and we're saying Lord today there's something in my life perhaps since I was born and I need victory today. I need to have that but now experience. Don't go back the same. Go ahead and press in. Let's make room. And then we're going to pray. want to make sure everyone can come. There's plenty of good room in my Father's kingdom. Saying, Lord, I need victory. I need victory this morning. And every single day of my life. And you want to come and say, Lord, today, something very specific. I need you to break this by the power of God. And I guarantee when you start living that victorious life, you'll understand how you can be unashamed. No shame, because I know Jesus changes. I know Jesus delivers. And it is the power of God into salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the movings of your spirit this morning. We thank you, Father, for how you have led us to this moment in time. All the discouraging moments in our past, all the hard times, all the different epics of us weeping at the feet of Jesus for our sins and for our shortcomings. Now we stand here on the very cusp of the newness of life. And we pray, Lord, this morning that you'll give us a but now experience, individually and as a movement. Secondly, Father, we want to pray for those who have come forward. And you know where we have been struggling for a long time. And we're looking and searching, Lord, high and low for that victory over these things. But now, Lord, we've seen it's not by education, it's not by books, it's not by reading stories, but only by Jesus. And that by believing in Him, we will have life through His name. So for those of us who have come forward for this specific need, it is our prayer that not by might, not by power, but by Your Spirit, Lord, you will break the bonds of Satan. 
that you'll bring us from under His power, under the power of God. That we would yield our members to be instruments of righteousness. That we would have that Damascus Road experience. And as you change us, Lord, as you change us, teach us how to abide in Jesus. So that the victory is day by day. This is our prayer. And we ask that you'll help this to be our experience. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.